0: This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. All right, should we go? We ready? We good? We ready? You ready? <laughs> should we do ready?
1: This? Let's do it. Sandy Metz's rules, right?
0: Yeah, Tom, are you? Uh, did you press the filter that makes me sound cool? Oh, that's later. Okay. All <laughs> right, but you'll do I that.
1: Don't, I, I don't think any filter can make you sound cool, there. <laughs> He's a magician. All right. Hi, Derek. How are you doing? Good. Uh, the Bike Shed. Yes. Episode one. Yes. It is a podcast about development and things related to development, I hear. Yeah, that's the plan. So, uh, our loose
0: plan is that we're just going to talk about the work that we do here at Thoughtbot and bring on some Thoughtbot and non Thoughtbot guests when appropriate and uh, just chat about development topics. Today, we had planned Sandy Metz's rules because you and I both worked on a project about a year ago, year and a half ago, maybe where we followed these things pretty uh, religiously, right?
1: Yeah, uh, I believe we made them golden rules.
0: Right, right. And that that was part of an experiment, right, to see what do these rules feel like if we keep following them.
1: Yeah. So we should probably first, uh, for people who aren't familiar with them, explain what they are. Yeah, so we followed, we, we followed these on a project pretty religiously.
0: We made them golden rules and said that we will follow these basically at all costs unless you can make a very good case not to, which is actually what she stated on the podcast uh, originally. Yeah. Stepping back, I think a lot of people hear, like, oh, here's some rules for programming, and they start to freak out, right? Yeah, definitely calling them guidelines would be a better start. Sure, but I think I think calling them rules kind of made it more, like, we're going to follow these. Yeah. At least on this project, right, at least on this experiment that we were doing. And I think a lot of people have the reaction of, like, oh, those rules are for, like, junior developers or whatever. I know what I'm doing. And I, I actually found it really
1: instructive to try and follow the rules, or, you know, as you might say, the guidelines. Yeah, no, and I'd agree. I think we probably took it a little bit too far, but that's, I guess, that is the point of the experiment. But let's, uh... Yeah, what are the rules, right? They are. Yeah, so rule number one, classes can be no longer than 100 lines of code. Methods can be uh, no longer than five lines of code. Uh, method parameters can be no more than four, and hash options all count. And controllers can only have one object, so only one instance variable that goes to the view.
0: Yeah. So I did my homework. I listened to the podcast. She said okay. uh, this was her, she stated the rules originally on the Ruby Rogues podcast uh, when they were talking about her book, Practical Object-Oriented Design on Rails, I think, or Ruby. I don't remember. But it's a fantastic book. If you haven't read it already, everybody should go out and, and read it. It's fantastic. But she listed these rules on that podcast, and she said that the fourth and fifth rules were your controller can only instantiate one object to do whatever it needs to get done. And the fifth rule was your view can only know about one instance variable. So I guess you could say that those are kind of related, right? If you can only instantiate one object, it kind of has to be your instance variable. Right. <laughs> or some property on that object, perhaps. Okay, so let's look at these. I guess, should we just take them one by one? Yeah, I think that's all right. What, like, what are, what were our experiences with them? So the first one was your class can be no longer than 100 lines of code. So that one, I feel like, was pretty easy for us for the most part, right?
1: Yeah, um, I think at least in the way we develop, it's almost not even worth having, because if you've got a class that's ever going to be longer than 100 lines, period, you probably have a good reason for it, just because it's so rare to have a class that long. Sure. The The one place I do remember we had some difficulties was in the user class,
0: which is a typical target for behavior and god class status, right? Sure, absolutely. And we had some problems where if you looked at that class, it was probably, I don't know, 60, 70 lines. But we also had a couple modules in there that were just include some behavior, basically.
1: Yeah. Uh, some... I, mean, I mean, that was also just most of those lines were has as many's.
0: Right. Yeah. There was a lot of like so many associations and things like that. And what it did cause me to do is like when we started getting near 100, I would actually do the math of like what's actually in these modules and plus what's in the class because the right. modules weren't used anywhere else they were just used for separation which
1: I didn't really like but there was one or two that were used else I remember I do remember we cut out the ones that were only used once we inlined them right so what that forced me to do one of the things that really forced
0: me to do was invert a lot of associations like mm-hmm. a lot of times you just put something on your user because you're thinking about it. and you're like ah, oh, user it has many posts and so clearly users should have posts but in reality for many use cases, you can just as easily say post for user and pass in a user. And um, so we did that several times, and I felt really great about that. I felt like that really slimmed down the user class, and there was no r- real reason to access it via the user cla- user instance itself. Well, and many instances. There,
1: is, there is one reason, though, right? Because associations give you more than just data access. They also give you cleanup when you delete one, and that did end up biting us. We didn't have anywhere through the UI that users would get deleted, but somebody did go into the console and manually do it, and then we got a bunch of orphaned records. This is true. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah, we hadn't. I, I think that's like
0: a larger problem. Is a lot, a lot of times when you create associations on objects, you don't necessarily think through the deletion circumstances, and you're like, oh, when we add delete, we'll come back here and we'll add the appropriate uh, destroy callbacks or whatever.
1: Right. That's definitely just one of the nice little. It's very ra- rare that Rails kind of has your back. I feel like it tends to sneak up on you more often. But uh, you know, assuming that you have a not null constraint on the uh, on the foreign key. Because that's the default strategy. It'll do is null out the key. It won't delete the other object, and then that will fail, and the whole transaction will fail. Right. So that not null constraint is key. Yes. Okay. So that's one area I I'd
0: had, had forgotten about that bug that you mentioned. So that's interesting. In general, I'm always I, I at this point after the experience on that application basically taught me to invert the relationships. Um, unless you have a good reason not to do so. And yeah. deletion, I guess, might be a good reason to consider
1: not doing it, depending on what needs to happen when you delete the associated record. User just always, I think, from the beginning of a project, you always have to be sort of vigilant of user. You will remain small. Right. There's user and there's the thing the application does, and that's typically yep. it. So,
0: like, if, if it's a blog engine, and, then user and post are your two things You're really that are magnets
1: for behavior that might not necessarily belong belong there, if you really thought about it. Yeah. I've always felt like when it comes to user, you sort of have a choice between either user is going to know about basically everything else in the system, just even if it's only because there's a a data association there, or everything else is going to know about user. And I feel like the latter is almost always the better choice, because other than authentication logic, fundamentally what a user is changes a lot less than what everything else in the system is.
0: It's also more intrinsic to the thing, right? Like, it doesn't make sense necessarily to have a post that doesn't belong to a user. Like a, a post has to be made by somebody. So it might as well know about the user that's making the post. Whereas a user can exist without posts. Like it doesn't, right. the, the user has a name and an email address and um, things like that. But doesn't have to have posts. But a post, for the most part, has to have a user. So should we go on to number two? Yeah, number two was uh, your methods can be no longer than five lines of code. And this one, I feel like, gets a little tricky for us because we also don't allow ternary statements. That's another one of our rules that we layer on top, right? Yeah. And we could talk about that a little bit. but So five lines, if you're not using ternaries, if you have conditional logic, that gives you an if, do something else, do something else, end. That's five lines. That's all you get if you have conditional in the, in the method.
1: And I do think I've heard some people say that you don't, that I've heard some people not include the else and the end in those five lines, but we definitely did.
0: Yes, definitely. I like. I loved it. <laughs> I thought that was great. It helped. It, there were lots of little private methods because of that. So you would say if call this private method, else call this other private method. It worked out for the most part. There were places where I think we had six lines or seven lines, but for the right. most part, we did five. I remember even having arguments with Caleb or Goose about about whether or not if you broke a hash up over multiple lines for <laughs> formatting reasons, whether that hash counted. <laughs> as, like, five lines all of a sudden. Um, (laughs) So, interesting uh, little arguments about that. And we tried really hard to be like, that hash counts as five lines. We followed it in tests, too. Oh, yeah, we followed these rules in tests, which I think was, like, the only thing about this experiment I would look back and be like, we should have never done that.
1: Yeah, no, that Uh, was a terrible idea, especially feature tests. Are allowed to be long <laughs> yeah. that is their job right it, it did it did result in a lot of nice page object type things
0: type of refactorings I feel like that worked really well like we yeah. found ways to build expectations into a call on a page object you could say one line of code and get a nice expectation out of it and have it read really well to the end user or yeah. to the sorry to the developer and I felt like those were really nice but at the same time like if I wanted to have like the setup in particular is really expensive for feature specs if i want a feature spec to be 10 lines then it's going to be 10 lines damn it yeah
1: um, well and usually uh you can you know feature specs it's oftentimes you can speed up your test suite quite a bit if you repeat your exercise if you have um, multiple exercise and verify stages because oftentimes test number 2 ultimately the setup is just the setup and exercise of test number 1 exactly minus the verification. exactly
0: so we did try to use the page objects to get around having multiple like setup verify do something else Verify, do something else, verify, so we tried to use page objects that way because i do I do really feel like the four phase test of like setup, exercise, expect, tear down. I feel like that reads really well, but there are times when you just really for performance reasons of a feature spec, it makes sense to to mix them a little bit,
1: yeah, especially once you start getting into every feature spec has j s true sure, absolutely I think this is one of the ones also where you have to really be focusing on not cheating. It's not improving the code if you've extracted uh, you know, foo and bar to a method called foo and bar.
0: Yeah, right. If, if you have and in your method name.
1: <laughs> right. If they both have truthy return values, you could literally just replace the underscores and it would do ident- the, the exact same thing. Ex- yes,
0: yes. So we definitely had places where we did cheat like that, where it would be like uh, redirect and do this thing or something, yeah. or something like that in a controller. Uh, that was definitely cheating. But I do find myself like now that I've moved on from that project, I do find myself, even though I'm not consciously counting the lines, when I get over five, my antenna start to wringle and uh, or something I don't know. Uh, When I get over five, uh, I really start to feel like I need to start pulling some things out, and it's you know I was never a long method fan like even before we really started uh, working on these, I would. Get very uncomfortable at ten, you know, and anything over ten, I would say, is too much. But five was a, a new low for me, I guess, <laughs> and I really I did find that I really liked it.
1: I noticed we used symbol to proc a lot more as a result of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely, because you can get away without having to do a do end block, right? So yeah, and I like symbol to proc.
1: No, I do too, and I think I think it's it was definitely a benefit, right? If you're if you're able to uh, if you're able to encapsulate whatever you're doing in symbol to proc. A single method call with you know you have a single method call and no arguments, so you've probably done a pretty decent job of encapsulating whatever that object's supposed to be doing
0: yeah, absolutely. Like today, I had a refactoring of something that basically just did um you have an array of things and I wanted to sort them in reverse reverse order by created at and using symbol to proc made that basically an easy one liner that wasn't like trying to do too much on one line. I could just say you know uh objects dot sort by symbol to proc of created at dot reverse and mm-hmm. you're done. So that worked out really well. And symbol to proc, really, it, it makes the code read really easy. I feel like if I did the same thing, split out over multiple lines with do end blocks, you'd have a harder time figuring out exactly what that code was trying to do by looking at it. Absolutely. Okay, should we move on to uh, rule three? Sure. So rule three was you can pass no more than four parameters, and you, can just, and you can't just make it one big
1: hash. Of course, the, last, the, the qualifier now is pretty irrelevant since we have keyword arguments. Yeah, which are really just one big hash. Well, sure, but nobody (laughs) sees them as hashes anymore. They look an awful lot like hashes. They do. Okay. Uh, 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 More than four method parameters is not something that's common for me, with or without the rule. More than two is not common
0: for me. Three makes me uncomfortable. So there were places, again, we tried to follow this, like, everywhere we possibly could. So, like, in the simple form helper for, um, like, those drop-down select boxes, like, the, the helper name is is escaping me now but basically those things take a ton of options yeah and we try like Caleb and I remember having a conversation for like 30 minutes trying to figure out if there was a way if we should wrap that in a way that let us not pass more than that many options or things like that and we ultimately decided that like okay these view helpers that are out of our control like we have to pass a giant hash of options to get the behavior we want and that's what we're going to do so even when we were consuming other people's code we tried to stay away from giant hashes
1: of options Isn't that such a great example of why this rule exists, though? Because, I mean, I don't know about you, but every time I call that method, which we can't even remember the name of, I have to go look up every option because there's so many.
0: Right. It's like, oh, how do I change the label on the, there's there's like a difference between the label on the field and a label on the option and things like that. And there's all sorts of options that I can never get straight and have to go to the documentation every time, like you said.
1: Yeah. I don't think you can, especially in a Rails app, though, I don't think you're going to get away from passing more than four to other people's code. Yeah. We tried, but couldn't do it. I mean, Rails is really the only problem where it was a
0: Rails and very Rails related plugins like simple form. Yeah. Were the only places we really had this problem. I do feel like, like I said, anything more than two and I'm not comfortable. So I can't I, I can't remember the last time I wrote something that took three parameters.
1: Yeah, I agree one hundred percent.
0: Yeah, that one's not very interesting, I guess. Yeah. Uh your controller can only instantiate one object to do whatever
1: needs to be done.
0: How do you feel about this one?
1: So I, think the, I disagree with the instantiation. I think that if you only are allowed to have one object, uh, that's going to encourage you to put both the work that you're doing and what you're displaying into, to the view into a single object, and I, I don't like that at all. Not every action is going to do something. Get requests should definitely only be instantiating one, but if you're going to be rendering a view at the end of it and not redirecting, I think that, that you should have two objects, but definitely the one instance variable it forces you to extract. I think we, we started calling them facades. Exactly, yeah. Other languages might call them presenters or even really, really dumb view models. And I think that we got a lot of big wins out of just being forced to not have, especially on our main dashboard page where you normally have posts and comments and deals and whatever else and so many different instance variables and just encapsulating that in an object was a big win.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It allowed us to like unit test those objects as well. Mm -hmm. which was useful rather than having to reach through the controller to do that.
1: You end up with an explicit API for the view. I noticed we tended to have one of these per view. Right. Anything that was more than just
0: like display this post basically got some sort of facade type. We called them facades. I kind of like the name view models, presenters, whatever you want to call them. But those worked out really well for us, I thought. But like the, the, you can only instantiate one object to do whatever needs to be done. I, think, I feel like that's the one we ignored the most. Like object instantiation, we were definitely doing more. Like if you had a nested route and you needed to look up the first item in that nested route, right? you're instantiating an object to look that up. And then you're doing something else with it and getting more objects. So I feel like we broke that one quite a bit, and I felt okay about that. But the your view can only know about one instance variable. We definitely followed to the best of our ability. I don't remember a place where we broke it. It did force us to, like, extract these facade objects that occasionally we had really hard time naming. But I feel like, like, if you looked at some of the names in these projects, you'd be like, what is this? We had some smelly names like Comment Manager. Things like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that we could've...
1: Manager manager should never be in a class name.
0: Right. But when the thing was, when you commented, we needed to do several things. And we didn't want to do several things inside the controller, right? So when you commented, we needed to, like, update the original post. We needed to send emails. We needed to do, I don't remember, any number of other things, really. And having some object that handled that was nice. Yeah. Even if we couldn't come up with a great name for it.
1: But see, I think that might be that might be the sign that m- maybe it was okay to leave that in the controller because the controller is your outer. It's 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 your main function in a Rails app, and it's probably okay to do more than one thing in your main function. Creating a comment, for example, doesn't necessarily need a name other than creating a comment, which is what the controller already gives you. We're, this is of course assuming we're talking about like doing a a few encapsulated things like sending an email and whatever else we were doing and not 100 lines of logic. But if it's create one object and send a message to it, create a second object, send a message to it, create a third object, send a message to it, and then render a view, I feel pretty OK about that.
0: That's a good point. I hadn't really thought of controllers as your main method. And that's exactly what they are, really. They're the highest level thing in your application. Yeah. But there were times, like comments in particular, had a lot of like we had comments on many different things right so we had many different comment controllers that shared a lot of behavior through modules that's true so like if we were to just insert that behavior into the controller themselves we'd be duplicating a lot so i think we pulled some of that
1: stuff out for that reason as well do you think that the number of modules we pulled out because we had more than i've seen on most projects do you think that was in any way due to the fact that we were following these rules Uh, The number of mix-in module-type things? Yeah.
0: Um, Perhaps, I think so. There were a lot of commentable things in the system, a lot of polymorphic behavior in the system that I feel like led us down that path as well. Mm -hmm. I wasn't particularly happy with it. We can get into that probably
1: on a show (laughs) all about modules. Um, We definitely can. Spoiler alert, do not put callbacks (laughs) inside of modules. You will regret it. But, yeah, I
0: feel like I don't know if the rules made us extract these modules so much as just the way the application went. That's fair. What, is there something you felt like specifically pushed us towards it from the rules perspective? No. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Probably user, it did, uh, the 100 line.
0: Uh, yeah, limit I mean, there.
1: I talked to Goosele about this a lot because he was he
0: pulled out a few modules out of user. And to him, it really just meant that, like, these things weren't related to the job the user was doing. They were incidentally related. I'm sure he's going to listen to this and tell me I got it totally wrong. They were incidentally related to the relationships of a user, and he didn't want to look at them every time he opened up the user class. When he opened up the user class, he wanted to look at... he If he wanted to know about, like, the relationships and methods related to friendships, he wanted to look at the module for user friendships or something. Right. Which is an okay argument to make, but I think following that to its conclusion results in a lot of modules and a lot of, like... A lot of the problems I find when I'm looking around Rails to try and figure out where something is implemented is like, oh, it's in this module. No, wait, it's in this module. No, wait, it's in this module. It's over here. Here it is. I finally found it. And obviously, you wouldn't want to do that in your application. So it's a little different when Rails does it. Rails is a giant framework. Um, And I don't really like it when Rails does it either, but in your application,
1: not really wild about it. Yeah, I think you can get into... The same sorts of problems when you're extracting lots of classes, though. Particularly if you're following rules like this for the sake of following rules like this. Because there are times where just you have some grouped logic that doesn't get reused, doesn't have a good name to it, and, is ju- and happens to be eight lines long. There's just times where I've seen code where it's just so overly extracted. I have to go into every, every what would have been a five or six line method. Every single line is in a different class. And so to actually get the picture of what one thing is trying to do, I have to follow this whole chain of collaborators.
0: Sure. I could see how that would happen. I don't, re- I don't remember having that specific pain on this application, but it's worth pointing out that you and I were both on this application for a pretty long time. So you end up getting really comfortable in whatever the architecture is. Sure.
1: I don't think we had it on that project either. Yeah,
0: We were able to rotate people onto this project pretty easily and have them pick up things Pretty quickly after their first few pull requests got shot down because they had six lines <laughs> in a method or something
1: It took me it took me a week <laughs> I remember <laughs> that very frustrating week
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you persevered <laughs> So like earlier we talked about some other rules that we follow I feel like we follow these rules pretty consistently on all projects, which would be like two rules I definitely every time I on a client project I find people fighting against are I will tell them no ternaries and I will tell them no postfix conditionals. So no, like, do this, if this, (laughs) or do this, unless this, in a single line. And those are rules that I definitely follow basically everywhere. I can't remember not following them. And these are not Sandy's rules, but they do lead to like having, like we discussed earlier, now I've got my if-else is now five lines already.
1: Yeah, your conditionals are painful.
0: Right, and I really like that. The conditionals should be painful, right? And also, like, when you're looking for a bug in a code, a block conditional calls your attention says what's going on in this block over here oh look an if versus you know as joe ferris calls them if surprises which are at the end of a line or a ternary, which is just like this harmless looking single line um and you don't necessarily notice that they're conditional so those are like two rules that i would definitely throw onto these five as something that if people want to experiment with some rules try these try all of these how do you find yourself following up on these sanity match rules now that we're no longer on projects that treat them as you know golden rules
1: uh i mean i'm not opposed to small code <laughs> definitely the one that i've noticed changed the most is the controller one one instance variable per view i don't think i did that before this project but i definitely do it everywhere and i i've, I've not felt pain from it
0: yeah, that is absolutely the same thing for me. That is the that is the one that's had the most lasting impact on me. It's like uh, let's let's try and sum all these instance variables I'm setting up into some object that can encapsulate all this behavior that I can unit test very comfortably. And then I can also test my controllers if that's what I want to do pretty easily because I'm talking about stubbing out this one object rather than, you know, the
1: five calls that set up these five instance variables right. for me. We definitely cheat though, every application, because we actually have two. Current, current user, user.
0: can't <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, current user is a big global that uh, everybody gets. Yeah, I mean, you could get around that by passing current user into the facade or presenter or whatever you want to call it, view model. You could pass that in, and it could just be a property you access. Sure. Like that. But then, but then
1: ev- every every page, right, in the header, you need <sighs> the current user. So every facade would have to have it. Sure. Yes.
0: Every So you'd have to have a facade. Then you'd have to have a facade for every single action that yeah. contained current user and whatever you were doing. So... Sorry, current user just needs to be global. <laughs> uh, and
1: in some applications, that's current user and current organization, things like that. I've seen some applications where they have a module called current, which sets thread local variables. I have also
0: seen such applications. We could have some of those people who work on those applications on this show to talk about
1: the pains of that. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think that one's a good idea. A little too, little too much global data. Right. All right. Um, what else you got? I was just going to say, uh, going back to the if statement expansion, because I, I do think that is something that's very closely related to this. One place I've started to, specifically the reversed if statements, that uh, I've started to change my mind a little bit from working on the Rails code base is guard clauses. So one of the things I find myself writing a lot, and this is, of course, a smell of a much larger problem in the code base, which it's just, you can't exactly go and refactor all of Rails to avoid this, but return if value.nil.
0: Yeah, guard clauses I can definitely see being useful as a single line like right at the top. Or yeah. in Rails code sometimes like three or four guard clauses in a single line at the, top of a, at the top of a method. Yeah. I can see that being really useful. And I also think the rules are different for framework code. They have different... They shouldn't be though. They ha- They necessarily... Well, okay. If you're Rails and you're using inheritance for a lot of things you don't want to have lots of private methods because those private methods now are inherited by your models. Yeah. So in the architecture that they've chosen, there, like not extracting those things out into helper methods kind of makes sense, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and we're, we're trying to move away from, the, especially on ActiveRecord, because every private method we add on ActiveRecord is a landmine, and we have to override method added so that we can warn you if you've overridden a method that we might be calling I just gave you side-eye right there. I don't know if you saw, but... I, I did see that, <laughs> yeah. Things that you only do in Rails code. Right, so maybe the rules
0: are a little different for framework code, or specifically Rails framework code. <laughs> um, I think I
1: think that can, that's definitely an, an hour on its own easily.
0: Yeah, sure. Let's put it on the list.
1: So do we have anything else to say about Sandy Metz's rules? No, that's it. I really liked them. Um, I
0: felt like... I did feel like they made me be a little more creative in places where I might have just been like I don't have any inspiration for what to name this thing so I'm going to leave it here and they forced me to, to do some more object design mm-hmm. which now I'm doing that basically everywhere I, get. They, I feel like they basically came around at like the exact right point in my career where I was coming to these conclusions somewhat on my own and then having to like being on a team that was following these rules together so that like on days when I was just not really feeling it the code review would be like this <laughs> you know you can't do this here this breaks this rule really forced us i think to look hard at these things whereas if you're just trying to do this on your own and nobody else on your team is really supporting these you know good luck but i think it was a really worthwhile experiment so if you're on a team somewhere i mean not everybody has the advantage that we have where you know we have new projects come along every three six months or whatever um so if you're on a team and you're on a product team maybe you can carve off one area of your application where you're going to follow these rules and see how it goes and I think you'll really find that you'll like where they take you, even if originally a lot of developers will push back and be like, I don't need rules. I know what I'm doing. But I think it's a fun experiment regardless.
1: I agree. But I do also just think that they should definitely push you, but you should ultimately have a reason for every single one of them other than just because the rule is there. Absolutely. And
0: I think until you try following them, it's hard to really fight back. Like if you try following right. them and you're like, oh, this is the pain I'm feeling from this, right? And these are the reasons why I would go away from these. And I think they're good baselines. And then you find out what the you know why you would want to go against the rules. Whereas, if you go the opposite way and you're like, "I'm going to wait till I find the pain until I make this method shorter," I think there's just boatloads of evidence, anecdotal and otherwise, that says that that's a bad idea. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you absolutely. So maybe five isn't the right magic number, but play with it and find out. So yeah. is that a wrap? Cool.
1: I think that's a wrap. Cool. Show notes can be found at bike shed.fm one. Ratings and reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. Thanks for listening to the bike shed, and we'll see you next time.